Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Our guest today is Aaron Burnett, co-founder and CEO of Spaced Ventures. Spaced Ventures is an investment platform for startup space companies. Think of companies in the sphere of satellite imaging, space insulation, rocket fuel tanks, and radiation barriers. Spaced Ventures is democratizing investment into the next frontier with minimum investments as low as $100. We'll get into Aaron's moment when he decided to be a part of the space industry, the diversity of space companies, and space as more than an industry, but an actual place with loads of activity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron. All right, guys, we have Aaron Burnett. He's the co-founder and CEO of Space Ventures. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me, Horatio. Looking forward to having a chat uh, about uh, space investing. Yeah, been looking forward to this for a while. I guess the, the first question is going to be, what is Space Ventures and how did you get involved with, with the space exploration industry and what is it? Well, so Space Ventures is, you know, what we're building is the world's largest community of space investors. And I think we may already be there, but just to be safe, I'll say we're building it. And, uh, you know, really functionally what that is, is it's a crowdfunding platform for private space investment opportunities. So think we fund our Republic AngelList for space. Amazing. And then my background. So I guess, <laughs> I guess to answer part two of your question. Getting involved in, in in spaces, but you know, essentially, you know, I spent several years in South America because I had what I call kind of like a quarter life crisis, where I was trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do with the rest of my life uh, in a you know create meaning in my life. And I think there's a lot of kind of millennials <laughs> that fall into that kind of bucket, thinking that way, right? It's cool to make money and it's cool to have you know all, all the normal stuff, but you know, how can you add meaning to your life? You can look back and feel like I, I did something of, of incredible value. And so I was actually in South America at the time. And that's the context for when I'm watching Falcon Heavy uh, with a Tesla on top take off. It's live streamed. Millions of people see this thing. And then I see these Falcon Heavy boosters landing side by side, which is fairly iconic image at this point in a lot of people's offices and stuff like that. And I was you know, kind of blown away. So I, I've always had an interest in space. You know, I think like a lot of, I'm fairly pragmatic. As a pragmatic little kid, uh, well, relatively young kid, I kind of said, ah, astronaut, I like the idea, but I'm not going to be an astronaut. I'm not, I don't know, a pilot or whatever you have to be, you know, PhD sort of person. That's not really me. Um, so I kind of set it aside as, you know, that's not accessible for me. But then, you know, seeing a Falcon Heavy land side by side, I said, that is like, Everything I've ever wanted to be a part of. That's I always thought that future was really far away, but it's happening now. How can I be a part of it? Is that started me off on on a several year like diving in as much as I could to understand about space, digesting you know random content like everyday astronaut, which is relatively easy and accessible, to um, doing things like reading Space Capital's quarterly report on the investment and the private investment in space. And I started to find a few things as cool opportunities. And, and then tangential to all that, you know, I've had a brokerage account since I was 12. My mom opened a brokerage account for me, custodial, obviously. 
And I just have always been interested in investing. I learned that <laughs> alpha is really uh, in the alternative <laughs> uh, investment opportunities um, pretty quickly as a young age. It doesn't take long to figure out that you know you either have to have like an army of uh, computers <laughs> doing some calculations for you or really smart people doing that uh, or get lucky or <laughs> invest in alternatives. So I'd always had an interest in alternatives. That was kind of under the surface. I'm driving towards a space thing because it's so interesting, so cool. And the future is here already. And I, you know, wanted to be a part of it and see how we can, you know, even accelerate it faster. And so one thing led to another. Uh, I realized there was a definite need for earliest stage space companies to get more funding. And I realized I, like millions of other people, kind of feel locked out of opportunities with space because we're not astronauts, we're not astrophysicists or whatever. Maybe we're not smart enough or what have you. And so all those things kind of coalesced to what was seemed to be pretty obvious, right? We can marry this desire to have access to space with this, you know, this opportunity and need to support early stage funding and utilize crowdfunding as a mechanism to, you know, reduce individual risk for every individual investor but aggregate that up enough to make a meaningful impact for an early stage space company who needed some real capital to get off the ground. I mean, they're not bootstrapping a, a rocket launch, right? So that's kind of the backstory uh, and where it really landed and brought in my co-founder, 30 years on Wall Street. He's got a funny, interesting background compared to mine. He's kind of more towards the end of his career moving into space because um, he actually applied to be an astronaut <laughs> and uh, got rejected back in the day. And now kind of full circle, he's actually now a Canadian space ambassador helping with the funding side of things. So we came together to start this thing, but we both had our own paths to like being interested, but then now like bringing what we have to the table uh, to make space and space investing more interesting for everybody. But that moment, you know, where you saw the boosters land, um, and if you don't mind my sharing, you know, yeah. I, I was reading that you kind of were overcome with emotion when you saw that. Mm-hmm. And that that really was kind of a, a turning point. Could you explain that exact moment? Like, why do you think that happened? So there's, it's kind of uh, two moments, actually three. <laughs> so, and it all happens to be Falcon Heavy launches. If you can get to see a Falcon Heavy, I think number four may be going on soon. So I saw the first one live stream. I was in, I was in Ecuador at the time, actually. And that was more realization that space is now and the future is now, like seeing, a, a, you know, these like, 20 story buildings uh, landing themselves is is crazy, right? Like if you were to explain that to someone, um, it it would sound like science fiction if you were reading it in a book and then you could see it live and it's like, wait a second, is that real? So there was that. And then we, we, uh, actually my wife and I saw the second Falcon Heavy. So we did this crazy thing where (laughs) we ended up moving to the Space Coast in Florida. We were in South America. We moved to, you know, essentially just south here of Cape Canaveral so that we could see rockets from our backyard. And to this day, like I, you know, my, my, uh, you know, I'm just, we're just renting a place and my, my window shakes every time a rocket, one of the boosters comes back and lands because there's a fairly substantial sonic boom. Um, so it's now that's how I track rocket launches, how many times my window shake this week, this week. <laughs> so anyway, the second time I, I was in the stands, uh, with my wife, because I kind of dragged her along, and uh, that was when we saw it launch, like as cl- almost as close as you can get, about two to three miles away. 
Yeah, that was a very emotional experience because it's so it's really hard to describe unless you see it and feel it in person. There's actually a um, kind of a, <laughs> a, a, a pulse, you know, a wave, a uh, shock wave that kind of goes through you physically as, you know, this thing's taken off. It's a few seconds after it does. But when it, when you see that flying, it's it's kind of weirdly it is weirdly emotional to see just a hunk of metal. At that there was no one on top of it. There are some cool rocket launches that happen with astronauts on top, which is even has a different level of emotion tied to it. Um, but even just a hunk of metal flying through the air, it's it's hard to explain, but it is quite impactful. Which is one of the reasons why we do things like you know trying to bring in one of our uh, users with a plus one <laughs> to be able to experience that for the Starship orbital launch that's happening in it well hopefully happening in uh texas area based on you know some of the, the the projects that are there and i think it's a couple faa or whoever has got to approve what they're doing down there so anyway but yeah we want to give people opportunities to see that because it's very impactful what's that starship orbital okay so uh you know if you're, if you're not following elon's got the starship program which is a massive like this is I don't want to overspeak, but it's very close. So it's proportionally right. It'll be the largest, you know, rocket ever created, very close to the Saturn V, but substantially more powerful. And the reason that's so important is because, you know, essentially that could represent a drop of, you know, from $5,000 a kilo down to $500 a kilo, which makes it space way more accessible, way cheaper to get into, uh, and all that stuff. So um, that's incredibly powerful for entrepreneurs that are trying to put up cool technology and just like anything when the internet became more accessible more people were able to put <laughs> random stuff on there and now it's ubiquitous right trying to get access to space ubiquitous so anyway elon and, yeah. and and spacex are building this starship and in brownsville they've been doing a lot of the advanced r&d for that um and so they have what is essentially i believe you know a prototype fully stacked and ready to go to launch it and go all the way around the earth and come back and try to land. It'll probably explode <laughs> the first time, like many of their tests do. But what we're going to do is, um, you know, have some people go down uh, part of our company. Uh, and then many of our company will be down there, but then we're also going to bring in a user from our platform. We're giving away a spot with a plus one for them to come join us. <laughs> awesome. So it, it's really about that emotional you know, I'm sorry, for an investor or, or a company or uh, that's part of your platform. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's any user is a part of our platform. You don't have to invest through our platform, but it's it's actually a fairly low key sort of thing. This is the most public I've really shared about it because we're not, you know, we're, it's not really trying to drive a bunch of users for this, you know, event. It's it's more about what we want people to understand is that it is impactful, is very powerful event. Take that opportunity to see it especially if you have kids or something like that, right? Someone that can be very, you know, positively impacted on that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, we wanted to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, <laughs> and uh, bring someone from our um, from our user community base, which when we first started this, it was, I don't know, a couple thousand people. Now we're, <laughs> we're well into past 7,000 users at this point. So it's, it's, it's going to become a little bit more selective. Um, but as long as, you know, Elon and, and SpaceX and, and the, the regulatory bodies are taking longer to get it figured out. We'll just keep extending that and give uh, people an opportunity to come down. Absolutely. Let's, let's dig into the, the business. There's this misconception, I think, uh, in looking at your website. And maybe you correct me if I'm wrong here. You know, we're talking about the rockets and the rockets are kind of like the, the, you know, no pun intended, the rock stars of the business. But the space industry is so much more, right? 
Um, I'm, I'm seeing there that there's, you know, you're talking about satellites, you're talking about all the different parts that are made for the rocket ships, um, parts that are made just for the launches, you know, uh, to help the rocket launch. How big is the space industry? Because, you know, when I think of it from the outside, I think of NASA, right, from way back when, and then it kind of got, you know, they canceled their 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 space program uh, for a little bit. Then you have SpaceX, and then you have what Jeff Bezos is doing. Um, and to me, like, that's it uh, from the outside. How wrong am I? <laughs> well, that's that's what I thought first, too, right? And that's when I, you know, seeing the, the Falcon 9, like I said, that emotional moment, seeing that happen, what am I missing, really drove me to learn and understand more. And so right now we're tracking well over a thousand space companies that, you know, and, and there's some people that, there are some people that give a really broad definition of space and say there's 10,000, you know, I, I, I like that. I, I support anyone that's following the space industry. So, <laughs> um, but there are different, the point being there are different definitions of space. Ours is fairly narrow, I would say. And we're still tracking well over a thousand different space companies. And so what we're really doing is, uh, you know, when we think about space, we think about pretty much anything that operates above the Kármán line, which is essentially a calculated line that said, you know, this is where space starts. Because you have to know a thing about space, like uh, the Earth and the atmosphere just gradually gets thinner. So <laughs> there's atmosphere way, way, way up. And in fact, there's even a little atmosphere all the way up where the ISS is. So if that's the definition of space, it's way, way past our atmosphere. So there's actually a little, you know, there's a line called the Kármán line that's up there. And, and that's essentially where we officially say space starts in many cases. We tend to focus up there, though there are companies that, you know, operate right around there or very close there too, um, that are essentially ultra high atmosphere, you know, stratosphere sort of companies that would essentially be a space company as well. But um so just to give you a sense of some of the big markets, right? The whole market for space is well over 400 billion, I believe. <laughs> There's a lot of reports on that. Morgan Stanley, you think of, yeah, Morgan Stanley did a really good report on it. And they kind of calculated that they thought that by, um, you know, 2030, 2040 timeframe, you'd have a, it'd be a trillion dollar industry. So you can start to calculate, you know, annual growth rates and things from that. Uh, Merrill Lynch said $3 trillion in the same time frame. <laughs> so those are kind of the, you could consider those bookends. I'm I'm such an optimist that I think that's the low end, right? But uh, regardless, you know, that's a substantial amount of growth that's, that's in, that people intend to happen in space. And I think one of the important caveat, or one of the important ways to frame your thinking when it comes to space, it, it's a very tempting to just frame it as an industry, but uh, space is a place. It's not an industry. Uh, space is a place where industry happens. <laughs> so it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the early days of the internet, right? There were internet companies, and now if you say something's an internet company, that's kind of misleading because it's like every everyone's a company. Every company has a space on the internet <laughs> at this point, whether it's just a you know essentially a splash page or their full business takes place across the internet, right? Um, so it's kind of it's kind of ubiquitous that way when you think about the types of industry that can happen. Uh, one of the key differences here is that there's a lot of physical, you know, products, physical services that happen in space. And so if, if you kind of move into, you know, what's happening right now, one very robust commercial, uh, you know, uh, industry, so to speak, that's ha or sector in space that's happening right now is the Earth observation uh, kind of sub-industry there. And the Earth observation, I mean, essentially, a lot of people are just taking pictures of space, um, but something's happening, you know, with like Ukraine, for example, there are companies 
that are essentially working around all the GPS jamming that Russia is doing and taking pictures and, and giving that or selling that to Ukraine. Right. That's a commercial entity that can't be, you know, I mean, Russia could attack all the commercial entities, but they're focused on the military and the, and the political and the uh, state owned, uh, you know, uh, assets that are in space. But there's a lot of, you know, I think something like 3000 satellites orbiting the Earth right now active. <laughs> it's quite a few more that have died or something happened, you know, with them. A lot of those are Earth observation. They're actually pointed back at Earth doing some kind of measurement towards Earth. And there are financial industries that pay for that data. There are environmental agencies that pay for that data, um, and there's several more industries coming up every day that are using it in an interesting way. That's like one that works right now, um, and then I'll give you one that's kind of a taste for the future. So you have you know all sorts of cool things happening, but right now, orbiting above our heads is the world's, well, Earth's as far as we know, <laughs> first gas station in space. This is a, a friend of our company's, uh, Dan Faber, is the CEO of OrbitFab. And um, it's an actual gas station in space, and they have, they're going to do quite a bit more, right? But this is, that's, a, that's an infrastructural component <laughs> that no one ever even thought was needed. But what's happening is there's regulatory bodies that let you essentially put things in orbit and utilize certain broadband frequencies and things like that. Right now, there's 3,000. And there's requests for over 30,000 satellites over the next five to 10 years going in orbit. So <laughs> you're just talking about a 10x increase. You're talking about some people that are building satellites that are capable of being refueled and need to be refueled. And uh, it, it's a whole industry that's undergoing massive change right now. And so there's a lot of opportunity, I th we think, in the infrastructure, um, essentially that whole economy that's being built in orbit today. And that'll just that's just a launching off point. That's fairly commercial already right now. But pretty soon you'll see that commercial wave take over in cislunar orbit. So the orbit between the Earth and the moon, uh, the moon itself, right? There's a lot of government activity being pushing, you know, things to land on the moon right now. There's like the uh, Eclipse mission, which is taking payloads to the surface of the moon. There's the actual, you know, Artemis program as well. I mean, there's a lot of things that are more driven by government. Um, but as you get closer to Earth, Government's kind of almost a minority player in some of the in some of the contracts that are being signed, um, or they're shifting that way, which is good, right? And that's kind of the the nature of space: is the further you get away, the more government is your main <laughs> your main customer source, um, and the closer you get to Earth, or as things develop, um, what you start to see is the commercial starts to take over. Commercial entities start to take over as the key customer sources um, for companies. Yeah. When you're talking about uh, Orbit Fab and you're talking about there being a like essentially a, a gas station for outer space, I'm thinking about like this interstellar highway, you know. And and you know, uh, my initial reaction would be to think of space as just some satellites here and then just stuff, you know, and then black matter in between. But they're the way you're describing it is it's it's a really active place already. Obviously, the closer you are to Earth, um, kind of wanted it to to now narrow it down even a little bit more. I know you've you've talked a little bit about the private entities. You've talked about the government entities. You've been an advocate for more money going toward the smaller companies. The companies are developing uh, new technologies, and that's something that you're tr you're striving for in your platform to invest in these startups. How competitive is it right now um, between these space companies? And can you give me an idea of, you know, how much money is going to these big players as opposed to, you know, maybe some young engineers, right, that are looking to get started? This is a key piece. And this is one of the things I came across early. I did, uh, you know, started with 
talking with founders, you know, to get direct access and the qualitative feedback on what they needed. Um, and then I start, and I was also seeing reports, like I said, you know, Space Capital, Space Angels did a really cool report, but you can even see that bottom down as well. And what I saw was lots of money was going to is going to the industry, and every year private investment in space has essentially been breaking records, right? And I remember 2019, it was like a big deal that they had like uh, four mil, four billion, and then it was six billion, and then it was like ten billion. But the interesting thing that no one really talks about too much, and there are some that do talk about it, which I like to promote, is that um, you know about 80, 70, 80 percent of that goes to like a handful of companies. And I, I have a data point I can't remember right off the top of my head, but Bryce Tech says something like, I think it was like 70 or 80% of all of 2020's um, investment went to, I think, seven or eight companies. It was something like that. And it's because it is quite intensive, capital intensive, you, you know, for a company like SpaceX, they can essentially breathe <laughs> or, or think that they're going to do a raise and they can raise, they can raise a billion dollars without, you know, even trying. Um, people just hand over that money. And it, so that tends to be major influences on you know the overall private investment market. Now, when you then dive in and you see what's happening at the seed, pre-seed, seed, and series A stage, what you see is it's been relatively stagnant or even declining in some of these years where you see all this record growth and all this money going in. Uh, and, and it's the nature of kind of the beast that when you talk about venture capital mixed with space itself. So venture you know, capital has been moving money up market in general too. Um, so a lot of the money has been going up market. You're able to consolidate and reduce risk because you can go into companies that already are, you know, post revenue, a lot easier to say that there's product market fit there, right? And so there's a lot of that naturally happening in the private equity or in just the, you know, venture space. And then you have the space space where early stage companies are almost always pre-revenue. So in many cases, you're talking with companies that are, you know, in like a like a fintech company like myself, getting revenue is relatively easy. You can build something; it's relatively cheap. You can put something up um, and get even in ours where we have to get licenses and things like that. You can do it for relatively you know small amounts of money. In space, small amounts of money <laughs> don't even get you necessarily a ride to space. Now, there's some of this that's starting to change, and in fact, one of the companies on our platform literally raised. 25,000, their first 25K that they brought in, they were able to book a ride to space. And there's some interesting nuances as to why they were able to do that because there's multiple trends happening at the same time right now. But having said that, you know, generally speaking, getting a commercially viable product to get a first couple of customers, it's going to take anywhere between 500,000 and 5 million to get up to do that. That's a very hard thing to bootstrap. Um, and, and to be fair to a lot of my venture folks that are out there, they either have to take that risk or they have to say, hey, come back when you raised money or sorry, not raised money, but made money, right? <laughs> Some kind of revenue and then it'll de-risk it for me. And this is the nature of the way venture works where founders are kind of customers, but not really. The LPs are the customers for venture, right? Um, they're the ones giving money and expect a return. And to be fair, uh, that's how the system works. That's how it should be handled. Um, and so a lot of venture has to sit there and say, if I put a million dollar check into you right now, I'm totally capable, but all the risk is on my shoulders. And if you fail, my whole business is gone potentially, right? LPs are not going to be happy with me. Whereas if you're going to bring in hundreds or thousands of individuals writing very small checks, you know, comparatively, $100 here, $1,000 there, individually, we all have very small risks. 
right? $100, if you lose $100, um, you're probably not going to be, you know, not able to pay rent next month or something like that. So individually, that risk is really small, but, you know, collectively, that means a lot to founders to get started. So I think the essentially just the risk, you know, <laughs> the risk reward balance is appropriate when you talk about crowdfunding. So it all just kind of made sense when we were setting this up. Um, and it's starting to prove itself out. And, and I think we're really excited where we're at today. But yeah, there's a lot of opportunity at these early stages. Having said all that, I will say that there's also a lot of people that just like saying the word space because they can raise money or they can be sound more interesting than they are. Um, space is a very cool and exciting thing. And so it will bring in you know, your snake oil salesmen and things like that. So you do have to be careful. You do really need to have a selective eye on some of those things. Yeah, just like in any other industry, I would imagine. But uh, but you wouldn't th you'd think that you need to be really good to talk up a big space game. Like you know, you need to like, really know what you're talking about. Well, the, the nature of space is interesting, and this comes back to my little thing that I like to say: space is a place, not an industry, right? And if you're saying, and if you think about that, really, all the technology that's involved in space is just like all deep tech. <laughs> They're yeah. like on our platform right now. We have two materials play: one advanced manufacturing play, AI machine learning play. And we have a quantum play. Those are all different facets of deep technology. <laughs> and they're all themselves. If you were just to say that type of company by itself, just a quantum company, that's hard enough to evaluate. Then you add a space angle to it where they're taking that deep technology and then doing it in space where there's orbital mechanics at play. There's radiation effects at play. There's communication problems at play because, you know, it's hard to communicate stuff down from space to Earth, given the vast distances and orbiting <laughs> kind of things that are happening. So, like, all of those factors make it very easy for people to not have the all of the requirements to vet a company like that, right? And by, by all means, you don't have to know everything to invest in a company, right? You could just believe in the founder. <laughs> but that also means that the risks are increased, right? Because you don't really fully understand it. It's one of the one of the barriers to a lot of early stage investing for like especially deep tech for um you know crowdfunding platforms and things like that is that a lot of times investors are comfortable in what they understand comfortable in putting investment dollars in what they understand I should say. And it's very like I spent the last 3 years of my life this all I do <laughs> and uh I, even I can't pretend to understand everything involved. By myself, right? It takes a lot of smart minds looking at the deals on our platform to even say, you know, we feel comfortable saying that they've passed kind of a minimum bar um, that's set for what we do. Yeah, we could talk about that for another hour, I'm sure, what you just said. But I kind of want to get into your, your platform, you know, and, and you mentioned it before about the, the offerings that you have. What I'm looking at right now live on the platform, you have, you have something about gas storage systems, satellite technology, you have a, a cosmic shielding company. I don't know if you want to talk about those companies a little bit, but more so if I am an investor, if I do happen to get on your platform, what are the minimums, you know, in terms of investing in it? How can I go about uh, learning about the offerings that you have? And then what should I expect in terms of holding that investment and how I can get a return? Yeah. So we'll start with, you know, kind of some of your first questions there. So, you know, right now we, there are four deals live on our platform and you'd be able to go in there and see, you know, the minimum minimum on our platform is a hundred dollars. So it's, it's, fairly accessible. And then but the the companies themselves get to choose what their minimum is. So there's one there's three that are at 100 and one that's at 250. I'm guessing I don't know how exactly this will play out. But I'm guessing my guess is that most minimums are going to stay in that 100 to 250 range um over time. 
it, we we like to encourage accessibility because again, <laughs> I did I built this platform and, and was very interested in building this platform because I wanted to have ex- access to cool private space opportunities. So it's kind of in our DNA. So accessibility is important. But so from a minimum perspective, pretty straightforward. You know, hundred to two hundred fifty. When you're investing in anything in private equities, uh, startups, um, generally, you know, anything on the CF platforms. It's, it's, it's an imperative to understand there's a lot of risk involved with early stage companies. So even in venture world, uh, even these people who are literally paid to just pick winners, right? It's kind of their job. Oftentimes, you know, they don't even see anything that's a better than a 10x return or, you know, maybe even their 100x returns. They don't see that more than 1% of the time. It's very common to have, you know, one, two X returns, three X returns. <laughs> that's and that's like five percent of your uh, whole portfolio, and everything else is less than that. And so, what comes up is you have to think about this in a portfolio kind of mindset. So, essentially, one way of you know, and this would be familiar with the listeners, right, is that you need to think of it in more of a portfolio uh, theory kind of frame, which would be you know invest in as many deals as possible. <laughs> so if you only have a certain amount that you wanted to invest in a year, divide that among, you know, 10 or 20, 5, 10 or 20, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with companies. And then you have a better chance of hitting one of those winners because there's going to be losers. You have to, in, you have to, all the numbers tell us that you have to expect loss and outright loss in many times. So, and, and in fact, I think some of the most recent venture data says that essentially even VC funds who get millions and billions of dollars, if they only have 10 deals, they're far less likely to be successful than if they just have 20 deals. Like literally just doubling their exposure gives them the chance to actually hit those big winners that do come around. So there's some like um, aggregation of the data happening right now where it seems to be invest in as much as you can. So reduce the check size uh, across more deals if possible. Um, so with that in mind, you know that's kind of one frame, lots of risk. Put it, you know, this is not really advice financially <laughs> itself, but you know, put it into you would think to try and get into more players than than uh, than all into one. And then the other thing is to consider that any early stage company average, you know, exit opportunities. So when you do have a big winner, they can be seven years down the line. That's even for a SaaS company. So we're talking about space, which even just five years ago would have been a much longer liquidity event. But even now, it's still maybe you know a year, two, or three, or four m- longer than your standard, let's say, like SaaS company, um, because you have to factor in things like they have to get on a rocket, <laughs> they have to they have to qualify a real physical product, put it on a rocket, get it into space. What happens if something goes wrong? They have to do that whole process over again, right? <laughs> and that and that's factored into a lot of their plans. So, like from a time frame perspective, space is definitely long. It's more of an opportunity for you to think about it as like if you're gonna have a home run shot um, that you're not really gonna think about for a long time, that's probably your better bet for for a space investment. If you're thinking this is coming back in two to three years, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. Though I'm sure there are opportunities that would do that, but that's kind of the way I'd frame it. So, would would you say that a lot of the the companies that you you will be having on the platform? Are maybe you know, like you said, are in their earlier stages, and they're going to take time to, you know, iron out their product. Yeah, so that's a great frame. So really, we tend to have a good focus on pre-revenue companies because there's, there's so much opportunity there, both on the investment side, but also you know, um, for just serving that segment of founders that are stuck, not being able to get 
their prototype into space, right? Um, so it's not all about launch, but you know, when you have a prototype that's sitting on a lab that you can prove works here on Earth, then getting it into you know environmental testing and all that stuff that's required to then go into space and then have your first customer and all that takes hundreds of thousands of dollars often. So anyway, uh, getting to that stage, yes, you know, those earlier companies, they're often a minimum of one, two, three years out. Now that timeline is shortening. Like I mentioned, <laughs> you used to think you probably would have thought it would have cost at least two hundred fifty thousand dollars to get into space, but we have a company on our platform that got in with twenty five thousand. So the cost is coming down, the timeline is shortening, but it's still there. You know, unlike any kind of like software product in theory, <laughs> they could code really hard over a weekend and, and put something up, right? You can't, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much money they have. There's going to be a months, you know, long cycle of getting it ready and into space. Um, so it's shortening, but it's not, you know, instantly short. But then there are other companies on our platform that are already post revenue, like um, the gas storage company, right? It's a fuel tank, which probably doesn't sound all that interesting, but <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes as much as fifty or more percent of a whole spacecraft is just the fuel tank. <laughs> so if they can make those really efficient, right? There's a reason there's a lot of demand for what they're doing. And they have a lot of cool things happening. But yeah, so, you know, you can kind of do more in theory. Yes. If you're post-revenue, then you're closer to that liquidity event. If you're pre-revenue, in theory, you're further away. But you're also, in theory, better opportunity for, you know, taking in some potential, you know, gains. You're getting in earlier. Maybe there's more alpha to be had. For sure. For sure. Maybe relaying this into, into this next question. You know, I know you hosted a, a Space Founder Investor event uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about that event and, you know, kind of like who was in attendance, what you learned, any networks that you might have made, and how you can relate that to uh, your current platform and, and kind of, you know, what you see in the space industry and what you see for space venture. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's important to us with space ventures is, you know, we're, I know there are others that exist, but I think as far as like really focused platforms uh, are concerned. We're one of the only hyper-focused platforms, especially in like the CF space where we really only do one thing, right? And what that does is that severely limits our companies that we can serve. And so normally that's a bad business model, right? Um, but what it actually does is give us a lot of ability to have far more value to space companies because, you know, by me only talking, in the aerospace industry and only communicating with people in the aerospace industry, we naturally start to develop relationships within the industry. And so there are a lot of large commercial players. You would think, you know, Primes, like Airbus, like Northrop Grumman, like all these are large companies, right? And they want to talk to us about early stage companies because they're interested in early stage technology, just like anyone else. So we're able to, you know, connect some of those, some of that tissue, you know, create some connective tissue with our founders in those groups, just inherently by being associated with us. So uh, unlike like if you're going to a more broad-based platform, you know, you have, you know, essentially a, a new Jamba Juice on one side and then another consumer app on the other, there's not much synergy <laughs> to be had. So we have a lot of opportunity to create that. So when we're having like an event, you know, these events, they're not really designed to fundraise. And in fact, there's very little of that. <laughs> um, we don't do that really at all during those events. Really what they're designed to do is create those networking opportunities for our founders, because a lot of our founders, you know, one good example is, you know, Infinite Composites, they sit in Tulsa. Tulsa is not a historically massive space hub or historically massive venture capital hub, <laughs> right? It's Oklahoma. They've got some great stuff going on there. 
I'm not downing on Tulsa or anything. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's much harder for them to find venture capital, especially space venture capital. So if we wanted to connect, you know, bring those founders in by being associated with our network, um, being associated with us and, you know, the, the brand that we're building, it actually does help them kind of get into the door in some of these scenarios. It's by no means a requirement. You could, in theory, still get in the door, but it's it's definitely nice when you have someone in your corner. Right, that represents the industry well. So it's one of the the key the key values that we like to add to our founders. And ultimately, you know, part of our business model is to take equity in the companies that are raising on the platform as well. So we have the same equity that investors in our platform have in the company. We we are well, it's actually required by law that it's the exact same. But I kind of like it uh, as well because we're on the we're on the same playing field. <laughs> I want you know this company to do well, just like you do if you're an investor. I can't manufacture some weird, I don't know, there are weird legal structures out there where you can manufacture things so that it benefits one shareholder and not the other. So, you know, we really like aligning those incentives um, and keeping us all on the same page. And, you know, so with that in mind, I want to create opportunities for, you know, the companies that are on our platform to find great opportunities for business development or future capital. I mean, space companies need a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of these companies going on and then needing a $10 million or $20 million round is actually kind of normal. <laughs> and it's going to get a little bit less, needing a little bit less over time as it becomes cheaper. Uh, but it still is fairly capital intensive because it's a hardware-based industry and it's in a very <laughs> tough location in which to operate. So um, yeah, so with that in mind, uh, you know, hopefully that helped to answer your question a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I'm wondering, and just a quick kind of think a lot here, like if a company is showing that they're growing and they're using, um, you know, the crowdfunded money to have their products out successfully, uh, put it out to market, does government funding then open up to, to these private companies over time? That's an interesting question. There's a little bit of back and forth. So um, a lot of times there's like the SIBR uh, programs and different other government contract programs that are really designed to be like R&D programs. And so a lot of them they have these kind of nuanced back and forths where they give companies money in like a phase one or maybe a phase two, and they really want them to turn out to showcase that they have some real commercial viability. <laughs> and then they'll make, give them more contract money and things like that. So they go hand in hand. Now, there's a lot of money being put in just normal government contracts towards um, you know space companies right now for R&D related things. But a lot of times it, you know, companies get stuck in essentially one of two things. <laughs> they either get stuck in, they do it really well, and then that's all they end up doing <laughs> is government contracts and writing those con- you know, those, those long applications out really well and uh, kind of getting becoming like an R&D house. Or they're really pretty good founders and they just have a hard time really like <laughs> readjusting their mindset to that. So there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's businesses and there's all sorts of other, um, you know, programs that are trying to bridge the gap because really the mandate of NASA and a lot of these other government agencies is to create, you know, kind of a growth cycle and create opportunities for the commercial sphere to take over from them. It's not designed <laughs> to only be ever promoted by or, you know, ever funded by NASA and Space Force. It's designed to kind of prop that up and create growth in the economy. And so, yes, there's a lot of back and forth. Some things do open up. Um, you'll see a lot on our platform that we do like companies that are actually coming out of early government contracts, because a lot of those government contracts are early, designed to be for you know early R&D. So it's a really good tool to then step in 
and help them turn that into a commercial business. Because that's really what these <laughs> contracts are designed. Here, take this, turn it into a commercially viable product and start your business and then come back and sell us, the government, your commercial product. <laughs> that's really what they want you to do. But the in-between step is kind of where we're plugging ourselves in because it's it's much harder gap than than I think was originally intended with these programs to overcome that R&D to commercial phase. You know, really want to thank you for your time again, Aaron. We got a couple more minutes. I got two more questions here for you. Yeah, I love it. And, and, and it's basically more bigger picture here. What's next for Space Ventures? I mean, I know you're still you're still young. You're still uh, you know having that 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 network that you're trying to you're, you're building up. What are the things that you see in the next you know year to two for your platform? And uh, what are some things that you really see as as positive, and maybe some things that are kind of challenges that you're going to have to overcome? Yeah. So um, you know. And keep in mind everything with a grain of salt here. I'm ultra optimistic. <laughs> it's kind of the job of a founder, right? You know, over the next one to two years, we, we're really hyper focused on building the world's largest community of space investors. Now, what that means for me is the big number. I'd like a million space investors. So I believe that that is achievable <laughs> within one to two years. That's obviously very audacious and crazy, but you know, I, I think it's definitely achievable. And then also, you know, getting to the point where we're really creating, I mean, the bigger picture here is I want to actually have a future where there's a million people off planet because they want to be, not because we're running away from something, you know, a million people off planet, whether it's Mars, Moon, or in some kind of floating habitat, right? I want that to be like my life like while I'm still around. <laughs> and to get to that level, of you know humans in space, uh, we need a lot more innovation. So when I when I say that, this is like ultra big picture. You know, I think kind of you know the first principles to getting there are be to get a lot more innovation happening, and the way to do that is to essentially create a thousand SpaceXs. Right? It doesn't mean a thousand rockets. I mean a thousand companies with the level of push and innovation that SpaceX has shown in the rocket industry and, and creating opportunity. And, and they've done a lot to push forward the economy quite quickly. So how can we replicate that a thousand times? Because if that happens, if we can look back, that won't happen in two years. But if I can look back in 10, 20 years and say that thou- we created a thousand SpaceXs out of our platform, then I'm very confident that within 30, 40 years, we will see you know a million people off planet because that level of push is, is what's happening. So over the next one to two years for us, it's all about delivering what we perceive to be high quality space opportunities to the public. Because for us, because we're so focused, if <laughs> if we just throw up any old space deal on the platform, that's not good. We need we need to produce what we believe to be, you know, the diamonds in the rough, so to speak, right? So we're really hyper-focused on bringing out a minimum of one deal per month. Uh, we have all sorts of things we're trying to fix on our, on our back ends around processes and stuff like that. We have lots of interest. Um, we have over six deals that want to come out in the next <laughs> three months, <laughs> but getting them out there is, is a whole process. So getting them out there, we believe it's a one deal, two deals per month over the next year, um, getting it to a point where there's, you know, it's so obvious that these are really strong companies that, you know, essentially an investor in our platform will just want to invest a little bit in every deal. We want that to be the way people think about our, our about our company fully understanding the risk involved as well. So yeah, that's kind of the next one to two years, I think is really about us ramping up to 100,000 and a million users um, and, and, and space investors and getting out to the next 
20, 30, 40, 50, and maybe even 100 if we really start scaling here uh, space companies over the next one to two years. That would be awesome. I mean, uh, when you're talking about having a million people maybe in 30, 40 years uh, out in space, yep. how about you? Then this is where I wanted to close is when are you going to space? <laughs> you know, you, you, you had that moment, right, when you saw that launch and – I know that that's that's for sure got to be one of your goals. Yeah, it is. And and so by the way, you know, I think one of the the important pieces to, <laughs> to think about here is not all of us are, you know, you know, the Matt Damon or whoever, you know, the 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 Martian, right? Where we're we want to be the one person out there all alone on a rock. I'm definitely not, right? I'm I'm fairly realistic on that. I'm the type of person that wants to go visit a distant moon <laughs> or something when there's actually maybe like a a restaurant there <laughs> or something, you know, essentially a small city um, where you can actually go to a hotel kind of deal, even if it's relatively roughing it. So I'm not going to be the first hundred. I'm not going to be, I have no interest in being the first hundred uh, people on Mars or first thousand, probably maybe it's a hundred thousand. Maybe that's more a realistic number. I want to be able to go to Mars in my lifetime. And, you know, that is the big deal. And, and that means there needs to be at least 100,000 people probably there at that point. So <laughs> that's a lot I have to accomplish before I uh, uh, before I get too old to be able to enjoy it. You know, even even the the Blue Origin, right? Um, what Jeff Bezos is doing, mm-hmm. got a lot of press was William Shatner. Yep. And when he landed, he started crying, man. And, yep. and, and I think also um, Michael Strahan yep. uh, went on that. And, and he also got emotional and uh it's like these guys saw something uh, that really not too many people get to see, and and for them to to get like that, you know, I mean, these guys that have lived full lives, it must have been pretty um, pretty awe inspiring. It is, and I think you know, I think it's important to remember there are. This always blows my mind every time every time I remember this. There are more billionaires on the planet than there are people that have been to space, right? Even even with the recent things going on, uh, you know, with like people going up in, in commercial rockets. I think it's something like 600, maybe 700, um, less than 700 astronauts and something like 2,000 2, plus uh, billionaires, right? So, you know, we think of billionaires, the ultimate like elite class. <laughs> being an astronaut, being able to see the world from that perspective is incredibly awe-inspiring and important. And there are other companies trying to create that, not just Blue Origin, not just SpaceX, but you also have companies like, you know, Space Perspective. Uh, I think there's others as well. They're taking people up in these balloons that go ultra high. So like almost, you know, 100 kilometers. Uh, but you can see, the, you know, you can see all of that, the curvature of the earth and all that. Now, you don't get the rocket ride or light a candle and hold on for dear life, which has its own adrenaline pump. But, um, you know, you would get to like over several hours, see all that. And you could actually, I don't know, sit down and enjoy a cocktail or whatever it is, your favorite beverages while doing that. You know, that's a whole different experience and, and kind of a cool thing. So, yeah, I think over the next decade, you're going to see a lot more people experiencing that and you're going to see a lot more. It's part of what you see with astronauts and things like that. A lot of, a lot of the com- camaraderie that's had between astronauts that have experienced that together, regardless of if they can, you know, they're from the same country or not. You know, some people say I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm utopian or something. I gotta believe, you know, I have to be realistic. Like everyone, there's always going to be wars and all this other stuff, and and I think that's true to some extent. But I do think as humans get out into space and are combating the void together because the void is very scary. I mean, it kills everyone <laughs> equally. It doesn't care <laughs> what color your skin is or what, you know, nationality, what little, you know, uh, badge you have on your, on your suit there, it will kill you. <laughs> and so I think as that, as that realization becomes obvious, I think what happens is more people realize they're, how they're more similar than how they're different. 
And with that in mind, I think that what you have is a lot of opportunity for humans to be better as we venture out, you know, and, and be better in ways. And we'll, we'll probably be worse in ways we don't even know <laughs> just yet. Right. Yeah. But we'll probably be better in ways that we look back and think like, oh, it's so stupid that we fought over borders or what have you. Right. You know, that kind of thing, I think, is 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 what the future of space is about. And I think a lot of people that are believers in space share that uh, reality. And so I think it's really about creating as much accessibility to space physically, as well as the opportunities in space, like space investing that may, that we can. And by doing that, you know, I think the world does get better. This isn't about escaping and destroying the world. It's about creating technology that makes the world a better place overall and allows us to, you know, keep it keep it nice <laughs> and keep it livable and also allows us to, um, you know, keep pushing forward and doing what humans do best, which is explore <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, find and invent new things and, you know, move, uh, move humanity forward. Aaron, that's, I think, the perfect way to end, man. Uh, really, really kind of encapsulates your, your vision and your passion for the industry. So thanks again, man. I, I really look forward to uh, maybe talking to you in a couple, you know, six months, a year, maybe from now, and we can catch up. What is the best way for people to kind of engage with you, to reach out to you if, if they want to get in touch? Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously our platform is spacedventures.com. It's space with a D. Um, but then uh, if you wanted to get in contact with me personally, I'm on uh, Twitter and on um, uh, LinkedIn as well as another platform I use as well. So it's Aaron Burnett, um, Space Ventures. You'll be able to find me <laughs> relatively quickly. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for being with us today, Aaron. Uh, really appreciate it. I know that uh, uh, our listeners are going to enjoy this one. It's It's been a really awesome conversation. So thanks again. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Horatio. Aaron Burnett, co-founder and CEO of Space Ventures. Reach out to him. Uh, he's got a lot of interesting things to say. Take care, Aaron. You too. This was an awesome conversation. Aaron's passion speaks for itself, and he really gave a great introduction into the opportunities for space investment and the advancements he hopes to see as part of his life's work. On March 31st, Space Ventures will be hosting a live stream on location at Infinite Composites, one of the companies on their platform, where they're gonna be blowing up a fuel tank as part of a demo. Or as Aaron put it, they'll be recording the explosion of a small bomb. If you enjoyed today's podcast, let others know about it. We find our guests so interesting and knowledgeable, and I know others will too. Or leave a review or hit the follow button. Until the next episode, take care.